We're almost done with this wonderful study of the book of Colossians. As we know, Paul the Apostle wrote this letter while under arrest in Rome. If you remember, he received news from Epaphras, most likely the church planter, pastor of this little church. And, and he brought message to them that this church was, was proclaiming the gospel, good news, of proclaiming the gospel. They were doing well. They were loving one another. They were, they were bearing gospel fruit. Paul said uh, in chapter 1 how thankful he was for this little church and their, and their witness to the world. But we know that whenever the gospel is preached, whenever the gospel is received, whenever the, the gospel is growing, the enemy is on the offensive. False teachers and false doctrine had infiltrated this church and said that Jesus wasn't enough. <coughs> that we cannot know God fully. We cannot experience God's power and provision fully. That there was something else that we needed. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so Paul wrote this gospel, or excuse me, wrote this epistle, declared the, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. That's what we're calling our series. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. All things were made by him and for him, and he holds all things together. There's nothing outside of Christ. There's nothing outside of the gospel that we need in order to experience a, a deeper relationship with God, a, 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 a power that we can have because of the gospel. They were teaching things like human philosophy and legalism, asceticism and false mysticism as this necessary components to, to rightly experience God. Paul said, no, no, no. And he goes and launches into this description in chapter 1 of the person of Christ, very clearly teaching the character and the attributes of who Christ is and the work of Christ, his atoning death, and that, how Jesus reconciles all things, including sinners, by the blood of his cross. In chapter 2, <clears throat> Paul goes on the offensive, warning the church of the futility of running after things, created things, as means to grow in Christ. Paul says, no, no, no. Listen, we have died with Christ. We've been buried with Christ. And now God rose us with Christ. And now he's given us a, a new life. We've been made alive with him, having forgiven all of our sins by nailing it to the cross. We saw that in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, there's this transition. Paul begins to, to make practical application life applications concerning the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Since we died with Christ and we've been buried with Christ, meaning the penalty of our sin has been paid for, so it means to die with Christ, and the power of sin has been broken, and because we've been raised with Christ, we have been given a new identity. We are now new creations. We've been talking about that. And because we have a new uh, identity, we are a new creation. We are to, verse, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we are to seek the things above. To seek the things above, chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, where Christ is seated at the right hand. Set your mind on things above. Have your desires on things above. We saw that in chapter 3. And because we are to do those things, we are to what? Put to death, verse 5, things like sexual immorality, impurity. And we are to put away, verses 8 and 9, things like anger and, and wrath and malice and lying to one another. Knowing, verse 10, that we have put on a new self. It's being renewed, transformed in knowledge after the image of its creator, who is Jesus. We talk about that as real practical applications for our sanctification, growing in our faith, being more Christ-like, put on and put off. 
And then we notice in chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, Paul, speaking to God's chosen ones, we spoke about that, chosen, holy, and beloved ones, further instructed the church how the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, our new creation in Christ, leads us to how we are to treat one another, especially within the community of the local church. Verse 12, we are to put on things like compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, forgiving one another as the Lord forgave you. And then what he says, putting, putting love, having love being the binding of everything together, to love one another. Last week, Paul moved into something else. He, he, he spoke about the rule and the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ and the new creation, living out our new identity, how it affects our family. We saw that last week in the home. When everyone in the home has put off the sinful practices, have put on Christ, it says wives are to have an attitude and a disposition to yield to the husband's authority. It's more about her heart than it is her actions to follow his leadership. Husbands are to lead by, by sacrificially loving their wives, honoring them, caring for them, having compassion for them, understanding and esteeming their worth before the Lord. We talk about headship as the taking the primary responsibility for a Christ-like love. He laid down his life for the church. We are to lay down our life for our wives. We are to serve them and love them, protect them, and provide for our wives. Children, it says, are to obey the parents. And parents, we talked about last week, they're to discipline their children with love and discipline, not provoking them, which meant, means making them resentful, constantly picking at them or picking on them, but rather encouraging them. And then within the home, we talk about slaves and masters, how they are mutually to serve the Lord. They are, they are brothers and sisters in Christ, remembering that the Lord has the ultimate authority over the home and over your relationships. They're ultimately, he's the master in heaven. We saw that in chapter 3. But before Paul closes out this application, he wants to address believers with something else now. And that's what we're going to turn our attention to. He says those who have put off the sinful practices, those who have, who have put on Christ, who, whose sins have been paid for, the power of sin has been broken, who rose with Christ, who a new identity, a, a, a seeking things above, how are those people to walk toward outsiders? How are they to walk toward those in the rest of the world? And the focus really is on what comes out of here. It has to do with our speech. It has to do with our speech. So our, Christ, our, our, excuse me, our scripture lesson, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Let me read to you God's holy word. Holy, inspired, authoritative word. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfast in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of a Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Three things we'll see. With this new creation and this new speech. Personal prayer, missional message, wisdom walking. Okay? That's three things. Number one, personal prayer. In verse two, Paul is going to instruct believers to pray. To pray. And, and in this one sentence about prayer, he mentions it in three ways. 
We're to be, it is, it, prayer should be continual, watchful, and thankful. Continual, watchful, and thankful. Right? For, let's look at continual. Do you remember? Paul opened his letter, if you remember, in chapter 1, verse 3, because he's a man of prayer. He said this, We always thank God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Right off the bat, chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we heard about you and the, and the message of the gospel, the growing in the gospel, we heard about you, we have not ceased to pray for you. To the church in Thessalonica, he simply said, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Why does Paul have to remind people to pray without ceasing, to be steadfast in prayer, to be devoted to prayer, to be persistent in prayer, to be faithful in prayer? He keeps saying that because it's work. It's hard work. It takes discipline. It takes setting aside time to pray. Constant prayer means that we are walking with this constant dependency upon the Lord. Upon the Lord. It is a constant reminder not only that we need God, but it also is an opportunity for us to realign our desires, our hope, our will to his will, his desire. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So yeah, we pour in our heart to God, but we must remember in prayer, that's more about knowing God's will, receiving the power and the strength to follow through with it, more importantly than it is what we want God to do. What we see over and over in Paul's theology, over and over in Paul's theology in the New Testament, is that prayer is simply not just presenting our desires and our hope, but a way for believers to take part in what God is doing, participating in the unfolding work of God's redemptive plan in history. And continual prayer does not mean, <laughs> continual prayer does not mean that we should be always just in the closet praying. We should always be on our knees praying. We should never leave the house. We, Pray without ceasing. That's not what it means, right? I mean, some of you are prayer warriors. I've met some prayer warriors in my day. They love to pray. They're praying constantly. We have a couple of you here, I know, this morning. I don't know if Max is here this morning. Max just loves to pray. And we need prayer warriors, okay? We need prayer warriors. Some are wired that way. Some of you have that gift. But I believe see, praying without ceasing or steadfast in prayer is more than just formal prayer. It means more of a posture of prayer from one's heart. Thomas Kelly, a, a long time ago, he's a Quaker, he wrote this. There is a way of ordering our mental life on more than one level at once. On one level, we can be thinking, discussing, seeing, cultivating, or calculating, meeting all the demands of external affairs, but deep within, behind the scenes, at a profound level, we may also be in prayer. Adoration, song and worship, and a gentle receptiveness to divine breathings, end quote. Just hearing God, praying to God, I should say. Okay? This past spring, uh, the men in our church um, studied the book of Isaiah together, uh, no, excuse me, the book of Nehemiah together. And what we learned about Nehemiah is that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. We saw that in chapter one. He learned about the destructiveness of of, uh, of the conditions of, of um, Jerusalem and the walls. And it says in chapter 1 that he sat down and that he wept. He sat down and he wept. And he mourned for days. And it says, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
And what we learned when we studied the book of Nehemiah, that his devotion to regular prayer, formal prayer, we can call it formal prayer, a continuing before the Lord, prepared him for what Thomas Kelly calls his divine breathing prayer. It says in the next chapter that when Nehemiah went to the king, and he asked the king, or excuse me, he went into the king, and the king said, you know, you don't look very good. <laughs> Nehemiah said, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's grave, lies in ruins? Its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, Nehemiah, what do you want? What are you saying, Nehemiah? What are you requesting? It's a very interesting verse. Next verse. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. He prayed and spoke. <laughs> his heart was speaking upward while his mouth was speaking outward. That's also what it means to be in continuous prayer. Right? To have a heart disposition of recognizing the sovereignty of God, looking for his plan, his purpose, his will in your life while you're living life out. But notice what it says also, the imperative here. The command pray is modified by a participle which is being watchful. In other words, Paul says not just being prayerful but being watchful. It means being mentally alert. Jesus, remember on the night in which he was betrayed, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he grabs his disciples together and he, acts, and he tells them to guard themselves. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Prayer, prayer is, is our spiritual weapon against temptation. I mean, who, who, who gets on their face before God in petition and crying out to God and sinning at the same time, right? I mean, usually we, 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 we sin because we ignore what the Spirit is telling us, right? We don't, we, don't do this. Yeah, we don't want to hear that. We want to do what we want. We ignore what, what God is saying, right? We disconnect when we want to sin. And don't look at me like that. Everybody does that, not just me. Prayer to fight temptation, and, and prayer, especially for the Colossians, they needed help to combat the false teaching. They were, they were teaching, Paul says, plausible arguments. They were wooing people in with their, with their nice talk and plausible arguments, and Paul said, don't fall for that temptation. Be in prayer. Be watchful. In Ephesians, he says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the saints. It demands mental alertness. There are pitfalls all around us. There's brokenness all around us. There's sin all around us. Being mentally, prayerfully alert, the enemy seeks and to devour. So we have to be alert. It's not only stuff going on outside, it's stuff that's going on the inside, right? And we, and we need to pray. We need to pray. We need to be in continual prayer, watchful prayer. And then he ends by saying thankful prayer. Thankful. I mentioned this before. I'm, I'm, I'm just thrilled at the apostle. Uh, I, when I first read the book, and I must have read the book over and over and over again. I don't know if I missed it, or, but this theme of thankfulness is just running throughout this book. And as I'm preaching through it, I'm seeing all these times. Seven times in this four small chapters, Paul mentions the, about being thankful. Being thankful, it's almost as if he's, you know, he's giving instruction and he can't like give instruction until he just says, and be thankful, and be thankful, and be thankful. I mean, how can a recipient of divine grace not be profoundly grateful? 
Back in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says that a thankless spirit is the mark of an unbeliever. But the mark of a believer is a thankful heart. And so well, why is that a mark of someone who understands the gospel, who knows the gospel, who knows Jesus, a relationship with Jesus? And because we're relying on grace. We're humbly relying on the grace of God. We're humbly remembering always and are thankful for all that God has done. And therefore, thankfulness becomes this atmosphere, this pool in which we are praying, and we're praying with, with thankfulness. Paul, <laughs> Paul's in jail. Paul's at least under house arrest, chained to a, a soldier 24-7. He had a lot of reasons not to be thankful, yet he prays, and, 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 and he says, listen, be, be, be thankful. Now, I don't, want to, I don't think we should misunderstand Paul's words as if we are to ignore the hard times and, and the you know, circumstances, the pain we're in. We can be thankful and yet find ourselves in a very difficult, hard season of life. The thankful heart, excuse me, a thankful prayer comes from a thankful heart because it sees past the circumstances, the hardships and the obstacles and difficulties and recognizes that God is the one that's in control. God is the one who is at work. And therefore, gratitude and thanksgiving overflows. Knowing, we, humbly knowing, humbly aware of our unfitness to participate in the plan of God who's reconciled all things through Christ, but we see his grace, we see his mercy. And he includes us in what God, what he's doing in the world in his redemptive work. With, 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 with all that he's doing, he's doing, the Bible tells us that he is working all things out according to his plans and purposes. With that in mind, his mission is mine, we could be thankful and, and see our hardships not, and, our, and our oppositions not as the end of all, but an opportunity to, to, to walk in faith, to walk in the sovereignty of God, to walk in the lordship of Christ, recognizing that he's overseeing all things. So we ought to pray. We ought to pray, it says here, continue prayer, watchful prayer, and thankfulness in prayer. Let me, let me see if this works. You can go to the next slide, please. Number two. Verse 3, look at verse 3 with me. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door, open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Okay? Paul's where? In prison. You would think he would say pray for the, for the prison doors to be kicked open so I can get out of here. That would be my prayer. But that's not what he's asking. He's asking for the doors to be opened while he's in prison to proclaim the gospel. Paul's not going to allow his circumstances to turn to deter him from his goal to proclaim the mystery of Christ. Now, we know what that is. We've seen it over and over in his book. It's Christ himself. It's the gospel. So he tells the Colossians church to pray for us. Paul's acknowledging his own dependency upon the Lord. And Paul and his companions are praying that, that God would, would open their eyes, that they would perceive what God is doing, that doors would be open, opportunities will come as they proclaim the gospel. Family, living on mission can only happen when God's people are praying. 
that God's people are praying that eyes would be that their eyes would be open that they would see what God is doing and expecting God to reveal opportunities to share his love and his grace and his mercy with others. Prayer is the critical means to which the gospel mission must be accomplished. This verse was the verse God gave us as we started to announce and move forward with our building project in 1946. But really, it is our hope that it's an open door, it's an opportunity to declare the mystery of Christ, the gospel. And listen, doorways are made to be opened and walked through. When you come next Sunday, hopefully, there'll be double doors back there. You're going to have to come through the double doors. You open the doors and you walk through. That's what it's meant. And this metaphor of open doors we see over and over in the New Testament, describing opportunities that God's people take to demonstrate the gospel and to declare the gospel. In fact, Dr. Luke in the book of Acts uses this metaphor to speak about Paul's missionary journeys with Barnabas. He says, as God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, Acts 14. Paul spoke about it, having these, these opportunities, these missional opportunities to testify to the Ephesians. He says that a, a wide door for effective ministry has opened for him, 1 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I, Paul, went to Troas to preach the gospel and found, excuse me, to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me. Even John the Apostle in Revelation used it in reference to God's missional intention to the church in Philadelphia. I have placed before you, God speak, an open door that no one will close. And, and what's important to see about all these uses of these metaphors within the New Testament is very important that these open door opportunities is because God opened the door. We pray, God opens. God provides the message, the strategy, the power for the proclamation of the word. Believers are used as instruments of the powerful work of God. Late German scholar Lenski said this, God opens the door by his providence. Many fail to note this and try to open the doors themselves, for themselves. When we are spreading the gospel, we must follow God's providential indications as to where we ought to work, end quote. Paul understood that. Paul even understood it to the point where he's in prison and he's writing to the uh, Philippians. And he says that because he's in jail, the entire imperial guard has heard the gospel. Everyone throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest know that I've been in prison for Christ. Can you imagine? Anybody uh, check on Paul? Yeah, so he's still talking about Jesus in there. Can we get somebody else to chain? Can you imagine being chained to Paul? 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Like you would hear the gospel. I mean, I would take two days straight. I would love to hear what Paul had to say. You know what I mean? To be taking notes. Come on. But Paul was about the gospel. He lived and breathed the mission of God. He sees his imprisonment not as a deterrent, a deterrent but an open opportunity to, to preach the gospel. So there's just a couple of things to think about as we see this second piece missional message. Number one is the message, uh, 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 the mission of, of God, the, the declaration of the gospel has been given to the church. Okay, y'all? It's been given to the church. The people of God, Ephesians 3.10 makes that very clear. Could God have used a different method? He could do what he wants. But he chose you and he chose me. 
And what we need to do then is to take the responsibility for our message. This is God's plan to rescue you from sin, death, and hell and then send you out with the message of Christ. And, and although, you know, gathering as a church is great and, and, we, and it's an open door for you to come and bring friends and family, maybe you're here today because a friend or a family, brought you, a family member brought you here, hey, that's great, but it should never be an opportunity for us to neglect our responsibility to share the gospel with others, number one. Number two, we have to pray. We're never going to see the opportunities if we're not praying. Uh, we've done the Timothy Initiative, a TTI here, a couple of times, at least twice. And one of the things, and that's just an evangelism tool, one of the things about it I think that caught uh, most of our uh, uh, attention, those who have come to the class, is that you wake up in prayer. You wake up, and the first thing you wake up in the morning is to God, give me eyes to see where you're working, what you're doing. So before we even say, give me the words to say, we're saying, give me eyes to perceive you working in the lives of people around me, right? That, and that, that's kind of just the wake-up call, as, as they would say, right? We're opportunities. We don't have to force people. We don't have to intimidate people or coerce people. We just simply uh, be faithful to look at the doors God is opening to share the gospel where God opens that door. So the question we have this morning is, are we, are we praying can, can we call on you, can I call on me to pray, expecting God to open the doors so that we can walk through them, to declare the word of truth, the gospel, chapter 1, verse 5, so that it will bear fruit and grow, chapter 1, verse 6. It's the missio dei, we call it, the Latin term for the mission of God. It is the Trinitarian God sending his people to share the good news of Christ. Notice what in verse 4, though, very interesting. Paul asks for prayer. That I, please pray, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Just think about that for a minute. Okay? Paul is saying, I need you to pray for me. Pastor, theologian, church planting, missionary. Please help me because I, 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 pray for me, I mean, because I need help to declare it and I want to be able to do it clearly. All of a sudden, I don't feel so bad. Like, Paul needs help. I need help. I, I, need, I need you to pray for me. I need me to pray for you that we would have clarity, right? To, to know how to speak, okay? And what's interesting about this text, if you like to write in your Bible, I do. Uh, in verse 3, the word to declare. In verse 4, the word how to, ought to speak is not this. The preaching of the gospel from a pulpit. That's not the Greek word there. That's necessary. Don't get me wrong. The word there is used for ordinary language with ordinary situations in responding to prayer. Opportunities that we have, whether it's at our work or our, our school or at the gym or at, at the uh, uh, playground or the Little League field, wherever it is, that's what he's talking about, that we would have the opportunity to speak the mystery of Christ and, and to make it clear and just share with family, friends, neighbors. And I got to tell you something. We had that class I was telling you about. Um, I got to tell you that when we, I think it was like 13 weeks. But anyway, I think everybody in the class kind of said, you know, I prayed that God gave me an opportunity. It was like an hour later. <laughs> 
there's an opportunity right in front of me. I'm like, yeah, it comes with a warning, warning label. If you're going to pray that God would open doors and open your eyes to see opportunities for, for you to speak of his love, grace, and mercy in the gospel to others, God's going to open that door. Be ready. Here at King's Chapel, we like to remind people, and I, some of you have been here have heard this before, that every believer... Every new creation, everyone who has died with Christ and rose with Christ, everyone who's put on the new self, has believed and received the gospel, has been sent out to declare it to the world. Everybody. The Father has sent me, Jesus says, even so I am sending you. Every believer is to take up and to focus on the common mission of making the gospel known. Preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, whether it's our next door neighbors, whether it's co-workers, wherever it is. That's what we mean by missional. Oh, now, I have up there a missional message. We would consider ourselves a missional church. A missional church means that we are all about participating in the mission of God as missionaries to the world. I've said this before. When you have, when you have someone who's your adversary, they're, they're working against you, and when they become adversarial, they're actively working against you. That's what missional means and missionary means. Missional means we have a posture that we are living on mission with God. Being a missionary is mean we are actively involved in, in declaring and demonstrating the gospel to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors. And we, as God's people, have been called in to be sent out as missionaries. So it's recognizing, you know, maybe you grew up in the church most of your life, um, I don't know, but you, you have those missionaries that go out. They're, they're, they should be honored and respected. They go to foreign lands, they leave everything behind, and praise God for them. But I think often, too often, we consider them as the spiritual ones. They do the work of missionaries, and we here, we just send them money. That's not accurate, and that's not biblical. We are called to live as missions, missionaries in our culture sharing the good news of the gospel with everyone and anyone we can. So as a community of believers, our message, our missional message, is that we function as missionaries in our cultures, being witnesses and ambassadors for Christ, looking for ways to show and tell others the message of Christ. And that's what Paul is praying. Pray for me, continue to pray, be watchful, be thankful, and also pray for me that doors may be opened so I can share the mystery of Christ with others. And, and please pray that I, it would be clear and I would know what to say and how I should speak. That's a message for us today. This world desperately needs to hear Christ. They're not going to hear it just from me on Sunday morning. It's our responsibility. Personal prayer, missional message. And finally, if you could switch, is, last one is wisdom walking. Actually, the literal in verse 5, walk in wisdom, is literally in wisdom be walking. We, we see this already, right? We saw this in chapter 1, how we ought to walk. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work. Chapter 2, verse 6, therefore as you receive Christ as Lord, He is Lord, walk in Him. And we said that walking, when Paul's referring to walking, he's talking about our conduct. How we are to act. The NIV, if you have an NIV, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. So what he's saying is as you live and as you walk and as you're interacting with non-believers toward outsiders, walk wisely, making the best use of your time. So wisdom is different than knowledge, right? 
Wisdom is different. Wisdom is more than just knowledge. Wisdom is taking what you know, taking the knowledge that you have and making use of it to reach a goal. Wisdom provides the environment of the walk of a believer. Godly wisdom should not only just embrace our actions, but as we see here, our speech as well. And Paul is praying, first he prayed that they would know wisdom, now he's praying that they would live wisdom. Live it out, walk it out. Godly gospel wisdom, not worldly wisdom, not the wisdom of the world that he was combating against in those false teachers and human philosophy and mysticism. No, he says, walk in the wisdom of God. Walk in the wisdom of God. Paul's saying, look, as you pray, as you seek opportunities, as the doors become open, make the best use of your time, make the most of every opportunity to declare the mystery of Christ plainly and clear. Now, if you have a King James Bible, I know some people still carry King James Bible. Interesting, interesting translation of that verse, of that phrase. In the King James, it says, redeeming the time. Maybe, maybe you memorized King James uh, Bible, some of you uh, folks back in the day. Redeeming the time. It's actually the same word that's used about Jesus redeeming us, buying us back from, from death and hell. But here... Here, it pictures the Christian as a a faithful steward who knows an opportunity when he sees one, and the faithful believer is buying, redeeming, buying that opportunity, seeing it and seizing it. In other words, when you see a bargain, right? We've all seen bargains before. Maybe some more than others. But when you see the bargain, you seize the opportunity. That's what he's saying here. When we pray and, and God makes an opportunity, we seize the moment. We recognize, and I think Paul is, is talking about the limited amount of time he has on earth. And the limited time we have on this earth. And that life is short and therefore we should recognize the, the fleeting nature of this life. And the limited season, the limited opportunities we have to answer the call of God. To share the gospel with people. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Verse 6, let your speech, gospel speech especially, be gracious and seasoned with salt. Our speech, while we're making the best use of our time, is to be gracious. <laughs> Notice the word here, and you, you, you're going to hate me for it, but it says always. Right? How many times you tell your wife or your husband, it's like never use the term always and never. You never. You all, Well, Paul says here, Always, always be gracious, seasoned with salt. When you're addressing a group, when you're talking to an individual, a colleague, maybe someone with authority, to the rich, to the poor, let your speech always be gracious. Not only in the message of salvation, but discussing the weather. This morning, Chris Reynolds informed me that the people who were mowing the lawn out front by Cumberland Farms decided to just run over our lights, smash them in tiny little pieces, uh, actually fairly new lights, and just not tell anybody. So I went out to look at it, and I said, well, I'm going to go talk to the manager of Cumberland Farms. And the Lord said to me, be gracious and seasoned with salt. (laughs) And I had a chuckle as I'm opening up the door. I'm thinking, all right, they're lights. I don't want to blow a testimony. Got the, gave the number, said, you know, have the manager call me, and we can talk about you guys destroyed the lights outside. But, you know, be gracious in all things, right? You want to go in there, we're the church next door, and, and 
cussing them out. Like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Paul is saying both the words, the attitude matter when we're coming to share the gospel. Gracious, pleasing, acceptable, tactful. Our attitude must match our message. Our, our, our lips and our attitude and our speech must be controlled by grace as it brings glory to God. Nothing worse, right, than an angry, bitter, uncontrolled, unbridled, unchecked mouth and then say, oh, by the way, Jesus loves you. God's grace is good. Right? So grace has got to be in the heart because from the heart, the mouth what? Speaks. We want to be gracious. Seasoned with salt. Interesting, interesting word. Palatable. Flavor. One commentator said, seasoned with salt was used to refer to witty, amusing, clever, humorous speech. Thirst for listening. Their saltiness will prevent them from being ignored as irrelevant bores, end quote. God is saying, listen, when you, when you talk about me, when, when you share the good news and the grace of God, when you, when you show how awesome it is to have your sins forgiven, to be a child of God, to know that Jesus loves you and forgives your sins, may it be gracious. May it come out gracious and kind and, and seasoned. God wants us to, to engage with others in such a way that it's attractive. Having a tasted of, of God's great, amazing grace. This is where character, conduct, and conversation work together as a powerful witness to the person in the work of Christ. They'll see our actions. They'll see our motives. They'll see, they'll, they'll see our, our decisions, the way we, way we handle things, the way we handle money or, or time, energy, pleasures. People are even watching how we handle our sin. And we, Paul said, let them be struck by the graciousness of your voice and the things that you say and the amazing gratitude of the heart that you have because of how salvation has changed you. God's grace has changed you. Barclay says, it is all too true that Christianity in the minds of many is connected with a kind of sanctimonious dullness and an outlook in which laughter is almost heresy. The Christian must commend his message with the charm and the wit which were in Jesus himself, end quote. We talk about the cross, we talk about the gospel, we talk about God's grace that changed us. So we, we, we're honest. We're honest. Now look at verse 6, the end of verse 6. This last verse. So that, he says, you may know how you ought to answer each person. In other words, as we said, let your speech be gracious and kind, seasoned with salt, palatable, that people will want to know, so that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person. In other words, we speak the right words at the right time and ask, you know, answer the right questions. Peter says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. The assumption here, family, is that Paul is making this assumption that people are asking you questions. The assumption is that people are asking questions. That's the assumption here. So that you will know how to ask, you know how to respond to them. So when they see you struggling, when they see you suffering, when they see the joys of your life too, they're, 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 they're like, something's different. 
You have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We, we, we live in a very hostile culture right now toward the gospel. We better have answers ready. We better have answers ready to those who would challenge our faith, those who are curious about our faith. We, we have to take time to learn to grow, and we need to take time, family, listen, to really hear and to listen to people, to love them. I mean, really love them and really hear them. Listen to their stories, listen to their fears, listen to their hopes and dreams. All too often, we're not listening to the questions behind all that. We already, we already want to give them an answer rather than listening to the questions that are tugging on their heart. What are they really struggling about? We need to be asking the questions about what's going on in our community. This way we can take the message of the gospel and what's called contextualizing. In other words, being, building that bridge to where they're at so we can tell them about the love of Christ. To explain the truth of Christ to them. That's what missionaries do. If you win, we've sent a lot of global, we support global partners around the world. And I'll tell you what every single missionary does when they get there. Every single one of them, no matter where they are, they understand the culture. They try to understand their surroundings. We're so, we're so comfortable where we are, and sometimes we don't see the culture around us. We just, we're like fish swimming in a bowl. Good missionaries will say, okay, what's going on? What's the questions? What's the hopes? What's the dreams? Where are the idols? So I can take the message of the gospel that's not changing and deliver it in a context, contextual understanding so that they would hear the gospel. That's what missionaries do. We live in a time that there's a lot of division. I'm not, I'm not going to get political, left or right, blue or red. I'm not, I, what I'm saying is, is we live in a time where people thrive on anger, thrive on separation, thrive on causing people to be separated. And although we must embrace that reality and the exclusivity of the gospel, we must do so realizing there's a broken world. And the gospel needs to be delivered with compassion. And it's going to require some, some real work of God on our lives to keep this relational civility in our lives. Wisdom so that we can stand on the truth yet with gentleness and reverence, keeping a, a clear conscience, First Peter, being, being gracious in our speech. So how do we do that? How do we stand firm in the gospel when not changing that? People are dying without Christ. And yet how do we remain gracious, seasoned with salt in what we say? Dr. Aiken in his commentary, gives us two things that I think will help us. How do we do that? How do we, how do we share the gospel, stand on the gospel, and yet not get into a battle with people? First, he says what we need to do is we need to keep in mind that we can compel people, but ultimately we cannot convince them of the gospel. We can share the gospel with people because of the urgency, the eternal nature of it, but, but when we plead with people, ultimately it is the responsibility of that person before God. Scripture is clear, the gospel of Jesus Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
And they're actually blind to the things of Christ. And their heart, which is, was our heart, which was broken and, and sinful and hard, will remain that way until the truth of the gospel removes the hardness of their hearts and penetrates their hearts and illuminates their hearts. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that. So we share. We share with passion and zeal and confidence, but ultimately it's, it's up to God. We're just the messengers. And what that does is that releases us from this burden, this inappropriate burden, that it's our job to save people. No, it's our job to proclaim the gospel. It, it, it releases the destructive, misleading feeling of guilt of those who reject the gospel. No, no, we're messengers of the gospel. We're messengers to declare and demonstrate the gospel, to just keep loving people, just keep sharing good news with people. Secondly, he said, we need to remember that we can contend for the gospel, but we can't convict the heart. Why? Because although salvation is a decision that one makes, it's new life which you can't offer. Only Jesus does that. Right? You can't make someone be regenerated. That's the work of God. The penetrating power of the gospel is the regenerating work of the Spirit who says in John 16, 8, convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So yeah, contend for it, stand on it, but you know what? I think more and more we get into this place where we think we can argue people into heaven, and we can't. We've got to find that balance. And I, I, I like what Aiken says, because I've been saying this probably for quite a while. How do we stand on the truth of the gospel? How do we not waver from the truth of Scripture? How do we stand upon the exclusivity of Christ and all what the Bible teaches, and yet do it with grace, kindness, love, seasoned with salt? I believe the Holy Spirit can do that. I think if you demonstrate love characterized by Christ, we can compel others, come to Christ. We contend for the gospel, contend for the gospel, but we also must recognize that it's the work of God. It is the work of God. So let, let's close this way. The band, you guys can come on up. Family, as we move into 2022, as we getting ready and sometime in September just really dedicating this building. Let me ask you just for a moment. Is there someone that you could think of right now, maybe two people, maybe three people, that you could begin to pray, that you could wake up in the morning over the next several weeks praying for certain individuals in your life, co-workers, friends, neighbors, uh, wherever, you may, wherever you are, and just begin, we pray every morning, pray, God, open the doors, open the eyes, open my eyes. Let me see opportunities. Let me, let me seize the moment. Let me seize the opportunity. Give me the words to speak. Let me have eyes to see what you're doing. Is there someone in your life right now? Is there someone in your sphere of influence right now that you could think of that don't know Christ, that needs to know Christ? Raise your hand if you do. Me too. Me too. Continue steadfast in prayer. Watchful and thankful. Praying that God would open a door to declare the mystery of Christ. Make it, make it clear as I ought to speak. May, may walk in wisdom toward outside. Make, making the best use of our time and let our speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Father, Sometimes I, I look at my own life and I wonder, really, that's your plan? <laughs> but it is, and you're not changing it. 
Your spirit dwells within us. Your, your work of our salvation has been made clear in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in scripture. So Father, may we be a people that can walk that balance, recognizing that we're being more and more persecuted and it seems that the exclusivity of Christ is, is being under attack. But that's okay. Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, the building of your church. So God, we pray that you would use us, that we would re- be reminded by your spirit to, to, to pray for those who don't know you, that you would use us mightily in, in a way that honor and glorifies you, that doors would be open, that we would declare the mystery of Christ. Lord, that we are your creation, yet we sinned against you. And we ran and hid and we rebelled and walked away. But you, in your grace and kindness, stepped in to our darkness and rebellion and sin. And you sent your son as the only sacrifice for sin to atone for our sins, to absorb the wrath we deserve, and was buried and rose again, declaring forgiveness of sins. Sacrifice accepted. And now, God, you're calling all people everywhere to turn from sin and to trust Jesus. May that be our message. May that truth prevail. And Lord, may you use us as your instruments to declare your glory, your worth, your value, your greatness to the world as they see the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. That's our prayer. So help us now as we sing and respond and then send us out as missionaries, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.